Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, I don't mention it often, but I can't, I was thinking about it because I was traveling last week, but how much I appreciate our worship team that leads us every week. You know, they just do such an incredible job. It's a long weekend for them. So last weekend, uh, well, back up uh, a week ago, I was in Atlanta doing some training, got done on Friday. Had Trevor set up to preach, I thought, I'm going to swing by and go see my daughter and son-in-law and got to go to church with them. Wonderful church, wonderful worship. And I just reminded how cool it is that across the world, every week, you know, gifted people give their time to, to lead us. But, you know, there's just something about here, and I don't know, it's kind of like that old shoe, you know, you put on, it just feels so good, and I just appreciate them so much. If I've not met you, my name's Steve. It's my privilege to be the pastor here, and we are really glad to have you. You can maybe hear in my voice, I kind of had this junk that's going around, feeling much better. Uh, but maybe try to tone it down so I can get through all this morning. But... Sadly, uh, yesterday, Tammy started going, man, now I got a headache and I got a scratchy throat. And we have pizza with the pastor tonight, so I need to actually push that off a couple weeks. So if you were signed up to come, uh, you should get an email, but we're going to push it back a couple weeks to the 22nd, I think it is. And I apologize for that, but I don't want you to get this stuff. And, and I think Tammy is probably kind of in the throes of it. Secondly, next Sunday afternoon, we're going to have a town hall meeting. And this is open to the entire church, whether you're a member or just attend here. We'd love for you to come. It starts at four. We really try very, very hard. To, it only goes for an hour, but it's just kind of an update, and especially here in the construction, where we're at timeline, you know, where we're at with the cost, you know, because obviously some things have gone up, some things have gone down. Uh, we will also, uh, our, our church is on a fiscal year that ends on June 30th. And this will be our first town hall meeting since then. So we just kind of want to give you a report of last year. It was an incredible year uh, financially and the way God blessed and your generosity. So we'd love to have you come and be a part of it. And then, believe it or not, one year from this week, we are going to go back to Israel. And I am so excited. Uh, nothing better. If you've never been, hopefully it's on your, your bucket list to do. We try to go about every two years. So we're going to go next October, leaving October the 7th. And the, the trip to Israel itself, you know, there's a couple days traveling because you kind of lose a day going and then a day getting back. But we're actually in the land of Israel touring for seven full days, three of them up in the northern area around the Sea of Galilee, four down in the southern area, Jerusalem, Jericho, Dead Sea, all that kind of thing. But there's nothing quite like going and, and walking where Jesus walked and it's just the Bible comes alive. And we love to have you go. We already got a number that are signed up. Uh, I've got brochures up here, and if you're interested. But one of the things is, is, you know, it's a long way to get over there, so sometimes you get there, you go, hey, where else can we go while we're here? And so we typically do an extension. You don't have to do the extension. You just can go and come back. But we are going to do the seven churches of Revelation. So that's up in the land of Turkey. We are flying to Istanbul. Uh, and if you were here with us when we did this in the spring, a lot of the pictures that I showed were actually 
from 2016 when we went there. So we'd love to have you go if you have interest. Uh, there's this, uh, the, the brochure. I'd be happy to answer questions. We'll do, uh, we'll do a, a gathering at, at our house to, for those that are interested, but it probably won't be till the spring, but I'll kind of want to give you a heads up. Like I said, we've already got some people signed up, so we'd love to have you go. There's that. We are in the book of Revelation. And we have come to Revelation chapter 5. And I had to laugh. I was telling my mom, I'm going to reference my dad today. Because Revelation was my dad's thing. He loved the book of Revelation. While uh, he pastored three churches... Uh, and he, I don't even know how many times he went through the book of Revelation. In fact, I think he would still be disappointed that I've been the pastor here 28 years. This is only a second time through. Uh, and part of it is, is like we've already been through it once. So, you know, this can't do it. He, but he loved it. But what I had echoing in my head is him saying over and over, you will never understand the book of Revelation until you understand Revelation 5 in the seven seal book. It's the key to making it all make sense. This seven seal book. So that's where we are today. So with it being that important, I really want to take time this morning and make sure that we're all on the same page, that we all understand the context, because context is king. We often say that leading into starting into chapter 5. So with that, one of the things that we have mentioned, there are four major prophetic events in the book of Revelation. And if you haven't learned yet, hopefully you're going to learn this. I, I say it all the time. The outline for the book of Revelation is found in chapter 1, verse 19. John is told to write the things that he has seen, the things which are, the things which are still to come. The things that he has seen, that's chapter 1. It's that beautiful description of Christ in his glory. The things which are are the chapters 2 and 3. They are the letters to the seven churches uh, there in Asia Minor, Turkey today, that were in existence when John was on the island of Patmos. And the things which are to come hereafter is chapter 4, verse 1 on. Our view of the book of Revelation is that from chapter 4, verse 1, is still today prophetic. These four major events are still to come. The first of these four events is called the tribulation. It's a period of seven years. It's chapter six, actually through the end of chapter 18. Um, but the, so the bulk of the book of Revelation is about this time period called the tribulation. So when you think of the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, the battle of Armageddon, all those things that are kind of floating out there, they all have to do with the book or with the time of tribulation. The second major event is what we call the second coming of Christ. It's when Jesus is going to return to the earth. We know exactly where he's going to return. It's Zechariah chapter 14 on the Mount of Olives. You even see it in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus is taken up and the angels say he'll come right back here just as he left. Jesus is going to come and return. And what he is going to do when he returns is he is going to set up his kingdom. For a thousand years, 
thousand years. That's why it's called the millennial kingdom. Thousand years. It's mentioned three times in chapter 20. So you have the tribulation, 6 to 18. Chapter 19 is the second coming of Christ. Chapter 20 says thousand years where Satan is, is bound. And Jesus rules and reigns here on the earth. But here's the thing about the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. So many people get confused. And the question is why? What, what is it about? Well, God made certain promises to Abraham, to David, and to the people of Israel that have not literally been fulfilled. And we believe that he's literally going to fulfill it. I want you to look at one passage with me. So I want you to turn with me. And I really want you to see this. It's in the book of Isaiah. So would you turn back to Isaiah chapter 11? And Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, they, Daniel, Ezekiel, do a lot of prophecies about this time that is to come. But probably the heart of it is here in Isaiah chapter 11. In fact, last night in Tammy and I's Bible reading, we were in Isaiah chapter 60. He talks about it again. But I want you to see here in Isaiah chapter 11 this promise of what's going to happen. So, verse 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from the roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge but what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. Verse 4. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted on the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness, the belt about his waist. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fat one together, and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow, the bear, will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the whole hole of the cobra, and the wean child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse." who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. Now, when you look at Isaiah chapter 11, you read in verses 1-2, the shoot from the stem of Jesse, the spirit of the Lord's going to be upon him. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. Has that happened? The answer is yes. Messiah's come, right? Jesus came. The root of, I mean, the whole idea is he was of the root of David. Well, then it starts talking about in chapter 4. He, but with righteousness, he will judge the poor. Well, did Jesus do that? No. Did he strike the earth with the rod of his mouth? No. I mean, today, if the, if the wolf and the lamb get together, are they having a nice meal together? 
Well, they're having a nice meal, but the, the, the lamb is not enjoying it as much, right? Has these things happened? The answer is no. There's still a fulfillment. This is that two-part of the Messiah's coming that you really didn't see in the Old Testament. But now, as we look back, we understand Jesus had to come. Messiah came, but he came to die. He's coming back a second time to fulfill these prophecies that were made. That's the heart of the millennium. But if you remember, Satan is, is bound for a thousand years, but at the end, he's loose for a little bit more time. There's one more rebellion. That's Revelation chapter 20. And in chapter 21, we get to the fourth major event, which is what we call eternity. This is a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heavens, the first earth are passed away. And we read that there's no more death and there's no more sickness and there's no more pain and there's no more sorrow. And a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven where we will dwell 1,500 square miles length and depth and height. That's all about eternity. These are the four events. Now, of course, one of the things that we spend some time talking about is these four events of the book of Revelation don't actually deal with the one event that you and I are kind of interested in, which is the rapture. What's the rapture? We took two weeks to talk about it. The rapture is the God-caused removal of the church, the bride of Christ, out of here. And so the question becomes... When does it happen? Does it happen before the tribulation, during the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation? We know it has to happen before the second coming to Christ because the, his bride is coming with him. When does it happen? And so we took two weeks. If you weren't with us, I encourage you to go pick it up. But our understanding is that the rapture will happen prior to the tribulation starting. That's why we talk about it being imminent, that Jesus could come back today and take us home. And guess what? That would be a great day. You wouldn't even have to watch the Cardinals get beat this afternoon. I mean, it's a great day. Or the Diamondbacks not score any runs now that they made the playoff. It'll be a great day when Jesus comes back and he takes us out of here. If you weren't with us last week, Trevor got into chapter 4. Chapter 4 is one of the most detailed descriptions of the throne room of God. Again, context is so important. Remember, chapter 5 is the key to understanding the book of Revelation. The context of chapter 5 and everything is set up in chapter 4 because it is the throne room of God. The whole perspective, is what this is about is the one who sits on the throne. See, that's what's different about Revelation than almost, I think, every other book in the Bible. Every other book of the Bible is focused about what's happening here on earth. It's, in essence, from a man's perspective, right? Of how God is dealing with this. This actually takes us back behind the curtain. And we see what's happening in the throne room of God. And what we see and what we hear, the sounds of judgment, the sounds of praise, the people about his throne, the presence of the Holy Spirit there, the 24 elders and the angels, the seraphim uh, that are there worshiping and praying and all of these things and the, the symmetry that goes back into the Old Testament. And I, I know Trevor walked you all the way through that. 
the very presence of God and what's happening there. That is then the context for chapter 5. So are you with me? Revelation chapter 5. Let's read these first five verses. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. We are in that same imagery of chapter 4. A book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. What do we mean by book and seven seals? When we... When we read the word book, what we think of is obviously a bound book. A lot of you have your Bibles, right? It's a bound book. They didn't have bound books at this time, right? So, so what are we to be thinking of? The, the Greek word here is biblion. It's a scroll. And a scroll could be rolled from either end or it could be all rolled on one with one that w- would be empty so that it would roll on it this way. It's a scroll. It would have been made of parchment, uh, especially if it came from like North Africa, or it could be made of animal skin, vellum. If you were with us back when uh, we were doing the seven churches, we talked about the church at Pergama. Pergama had this incredible library that wanted to rival the one that was down in Alexandria. Uh, but they were the biggest producers of, uh, of vellum, the animal skin. And so it's a scroll, and one of the things that we read here is this written on the inside, which makes sense, right? That was the beauty of the scroll. You wrote it, but you rolled it up so it protected the print from all of the elements so that you unroll it and it's still there, right? It's not getting smudged. It's not getting uh, scratches on it. It's not you know, getting mud on it. It's protected. But this scroll is interesting because it's written on the inside, but also the outside. Now, even though maybe a little bit more rare, not unheard of, uh, you think of Ezekiel chapter 2. Then I looked and behold, a hand was extended to me and lo, a scroll was in it. And when he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and on the back written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. So in Jewish culture, these scrolls were very important. They, they had often the sense of contracts or covenants that were made. I don't know if you would remember uh, Jeremiah the weeping prophet is prophesying during the time that Judah is being taken captive to Babylon. And Babylon came three times to take them captive. And Jeremiah was there each time. It was the third time they destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, and everybody was taken in captivity. But as Jeremiah prophesied to them about the coming captivity, 
he also prophesied about that God would ultimately bring them back. And you remember the story? God came to Jeremiah and says, I believe it was your cousin is going to come and he's going to offer to you to buy a piece of property, right? It's the kinsman redeemer piece, right? So land was given by, by tribe and then by family. And so there was a pecking order of who could actually buy it. And Jeremiah was next in line. Well, they're all going into captivity. And God says, no, Jeremiah, I want you to buy the land, put it in a scroll, then go bury the scroll. And his whole point is, is I'm going to bring you back to the land. I, there, there's, this is not the end. God is going to restore Israel to the land. And so that was the picture there. And that's what happened. So when you think of this scroll, that's kind of what you're thinking about. And then what we read is that it is sealed with seven seals. Now, that doesn't mean that it's like seven seals to get into it, you break. You know, like today, if you get a box from Amazon, they're going to have about seven pieces of tape on it, typically, right? And you take a knife and you just run it all the way across so that you can get it. That's not the idea here. The idea of the seven seals is you would unroll it to a place... And then there would be a, and it typically was a wax seal. And then you would have to break that to be able to then and go and read. But it would only go as far as the next seal. So once you've read that, you would break the second seal. And then you would, it would unroll further all the way out to seven seals. So the idea here is that it is sealed. So this is something that is private. This is something that God has not wanted mankind to know or has not revealed yet, but will be revealed in this time. And it's a process. It's one. It's then two. It's then three. What's really interesting, we talked about Jewish history, Roman history, is that by the time we are here, in that first century AD that Rome almost used these type of scrolls, oh, by the way, sealed with seven seals, almost exclusively for contracts. Uh, marriage contracts, lease contracts, rental contracts, uh, deed ownership contracts. This, is, this was that world. So the question is, okay, so if this is some type of a legal contract, this scroll, this book, sealed with seven seals, historically, they would have understood immediately what that was. The question is, what kind of a legal contract is this? And I mentioned when we uh, talked about the questions of when the rapture, you know, if you get two to three Christians together in any one place, you have four opinions, right? So there's difference of opinion here. But let me tell you what I think, and I think the evidence, because a couple things here. No, notice what he says. No one was found worthy to open the book. And then John says, I begin to weep greatly because no one... What? And, and in the Greek there... When it says great, I mean, it's like hysterically. He just out of control began to weep. Why? Well, is this the, is this the contract for redeeming man? 
right? Is this that without this, there's no hope for man? Well, no. Jesus had already come and established the new covenant, right? That was through his blood. John is a, a believer here. In fact, we're gonna, he's going to say, hey, don't weep, one is found, and you're going to have Jesus there, asses have been slain. So it's not, about, it's not about the redemption of man. But why would he weep? Why is this so important? I think the best explanation for it is that what, what this is, is that this is the, as it were, the deep covenant for the earth. For the restoration of everything that man lost. Now let me take you back. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. God creates man, and what does God tell man to do? Be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth, to rule it and to subdue it. Man was supposed to be in charge. And oh, by the way, this was going to be a great place because there was no sin, there's no death, there's no curse on the ground or on the animals. But what did man do? Man rebelled. Man did not rule. Man subjected himself to Satan and listened to him and disobeyed God. And now all of a sudden, he loses his ability to rule and to subdue the earth. There's somebody who he's given that power to. The enemy. Who today is the prince and power of the air? It's Satan. Who's the god of this age? It's Satan. That was never God's plan. But we handled that to him in our rebellion. Well, God has made promises to David and to Abraham and to the children of Israel that, no, there's going to be a time when the curse is going to be gone. It's going to be as it should have been the lion and the lamb are going to lay down together. The baby's going to play by the hole of the cobra and going to be perfectly safe because the curse will be gone. Man will once again be in his rightful place. So Jesus came and redeemed us spiritually. I believe what we see in this scroll is the deed of the, uh, in essence, covenant deed of, of, the, of the earth. And what's written on the outside, which they can see, right? Because the seals haven't been opened yet. And yet John's reading hysterically, weeping hysterically because no one's worthy. So what's on the outside? What's on the outside are all of the parameters of who could redeem this. Oh, by the way, he has to be of the tribe of Judah. He's got to be of the lineage of David. He's got to be that perfect second Adam who has walked in obedience to God. Who is it? It's Jesus. That's exactly what we're going to get into next week. And what we find here then is that Jesus is the one who has come to redeem. He is the one who's worthy. 
He meets all the criteria. He is the one now who can open and break the seals. Now, what's unique about this is that typically what you would break the seals, what you would find out is kind of the, the what, right? What is involved in the, in the property or what is involved in this contract? But what we find here is that these seals are not about the what, it's about the how. What has to be done? What has to be executed? To redeem the world. And that's why with the breaking of the steel starting in chapter 6 verse 1. It's the execution of God's judgment. And so you get to that seventh seal. And the amazing thing about the seventh seal. Is it doesn't immediately bring the final piece because once you break that one what you find is now there's another series of seven more judgments called the trumpet judgments and oh by the way when you get to the seventh trumpet judgment and you open it up it actually is not one judgment but another series of seven judgments called the bold judgments so 19 judgments that have to be executed on the earth to prepare it to once again be out from under the curse and back under its rightful place of man, the second Adam, the perfect God-man, now ruling and reigning just like was always intended. And I was thinking about all the things that are accomplished in this. And, and there's so many more. I just wanted to mention a few. So what happens during the seven years? Well, Israel's prepared. If you were with us a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the book of, uh, when does the, the rapture happen? We went to Daniel chapter 9. And I don't mean to rehash all that, but basically there's 490 years, 70 groups of seven years that are determined. And there were six things, you know, to bring in everlasting righteousness and to make atonement for sin and ultimately to anoint the most holy place, which by that way, the holy place had been destroyed. It's talking about Ezekiel's temple in the millennium there. There's 70 groups of seven years and we saw how 483 of those or 69 of those groups of seven have already been happened but there's one left and that's going to be in the tribulation and that's where God is at work in preparing Israel and one of the really cool things uh, that we even see in our day is how God is preparing Israel in fact Paul ties into this in the book of Romans you know, there's, there's almost like a darkness towards Israel. It's the gospel now going and being much more accepted by the Gentiles. And you get to chapter 11, and Paul says, is God done with his people Israel? And he says, no. But in the last days, he's going to turn their hearts. And folks, that's one of the cool things about what's happening today. God is already starting to turn the hearts. People have asked, well, nobody, you know, if all the Christians are taken out, is nobody getting saved during the tribulation? Absolutely. People are getting saved. In fact, there's 144,000 Jews who get saved, who go preaching the gospel. Many people are getting saved, but it's going to be more primarily Jewish in its orientation at that point. So uh, if we're a Facebook friend, you can look. If we're not, you can. I don't ever ask to be anybody's Facebook friend, but if you ask, I'll do it. I don't post often, but what I post, pretty good. Uh, <laughs> 
I just actually just posted this article from uh, All Israel um, News, wonderful piece, talking about how God is working. So in 1948, when Israel became a nation again, it is estimated of the Jewish people at that time, of those who actually believed in Jesus as the Messiah, so we would call him a Messianic Jew. They believed Jesus as the Messiah had come and died. They were believers in Christ. That worldwide, there were 23. Today, depending on where you see the population between about 15 and 17 million, today they estimate that there are more than a million Jewish believers in Jesus as the Messiah. God's already starting to turn their hearts. And it's going to really ramp up during this time. Secondly, there's the rebellious nature of mankind that is going to be judged. And you can't read what Jesus says in Matthew 24 without understanding. That's part of, you know, think the flood. God is judging sinful rebellion that happens in this. And that's what's going to take place. The Gentile nations. You, you read about how Remember the story in Daniel chapter 2 of the great statue, the Gentile kingdoms. But ultimately, there's a stone not made with hands that crushes it, right? The time of the Gentiles comes to, to an end. He talks about it again in Daniel chapter 7 with all the, the great beasts. But finally, they're all killed before the, the ancient of days. All of this takes place. We see Satan is now bound in Revelation 20 at the end of the tribulation for thousand years he is bound the earth is prepared for this everlasting righteousness everything that is happening here is that God is preparing the earth for Jesus to return and to sit on his throne and to rule and to reign and the curse will be gone and to bring in that everlasting righteousness and that's why what's beautiful about understanding this seven seal book in this way that everything that has to be done to get it back to its rightful ownership will take place in these seven years, which culminates with Jesus returning and setting up his kingdom. And folk, if you're here today and you've not come to put your faith and trust in Jesus, this is exactly why we say all the time, today is the day of salvation. Because the world is set God's already, you could see it where, I mean, you, you think about, I can remember back, you know, even 15, 20 years ago, we'd read this stuff and hear this Antichrist is going to be able to control who buys and sells. And we thought, well, how could that happen? And yet we see that happen today, right? If you say the wrong thing, they shut down your bank account, right? If you don't get the mark of the beast, you're not going to be able to, it, we're seeing it in living color happen, folks. We are so close. And today is that day of salvation. Say, so, oh, I just want to wait. Okay, you can wait. But you harden your heart. And there's very, a very good chance that all these events start to happen. There will be a hardness there and you still won't see. You see that through Scripture over and over and over again. Today's the day of salvation. But here's the thing for those of us that know Jesus, and i got to be done. Folks, 
the book of Revelation is not just for information. It's never about, oh, wow, this is all right. What's, what's just, man, we're so excited and we, can, we know everything is coming. No, no, no. The book of Revelation for us who believe is to motivate us to live today. Because we know that this is maybe, perhaps, the last moments to live Jesus and share Jesus. The last moments that some people are ever going to have to put their faith and trust in Jesus. Because once we're gone, this thing turns south so quickly. Today is the day for us to live on mission.